Hi, this is Roger Daughtry of The Who, and we use sun equipment, we think it's the best. Hi, this is John Emerson of The Who, and we use sun gear exclusively. This is Pete Townsend of The Who, we're using sun equipment now, and we're finding it pretty hard to break. Hi, this is Keith of The Who. Sun equipment, throw it at state. Sun guitar amplifiers and public address systems used by some of the most prominent musicians in the world. The Who, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Buffalo Springfield, Blues Magoos, and hundreds more. Some guitar amplifiers and public address systems featuring JB Lansing speakers and enough undistorted power to reach any audience. For more information, see your local Sun dealer today. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. Five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. discontent with the Beatles. Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back to January 8th, 1969. The Beatles are back from lunch and back to rehearsing. This episode will be a little shorter than usual. Ironically, when the Beatles are focused and rehearsing efficiently, there isn't so much to talk about. But stick around. This episode is all about Maxwell's Silverhammer, and we will see the very first cracks begin to show in the Beatles' relationship with this song. Plus, a story you may not have heard before. Before we start, another podcast recommendation. The Holmes Archive of Electronic Music is a podcast series that tells the history of the evolution of electronica from found sounds, music concrete, through to the modern era. As we know, both Paul and John and Yoko had an interest in the artistic works of Stockhausen and John Cage. This is the kind of work they were listening to, challenging but rewarding. Check it out if that's your thing. A quick reminder that if you want to support the show, you can leave a tip on www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod, W-O-D-P-O-D. It's not a subscription, just a one-off payment, and I won't be giving you this attractive carriage clock to welcome you as a member. Before we start, here is my customary recap of episode 39. As John gets himself ready on the Lowry organ to play All Things Must Pass, Paul is still noodling on a bass line that at times sounds a little like MacArthur Park. He sings along some improvised words to this. For once, it's John who stops the band procrastinating. 
He's been on good form this morning, clear-headed and assertive. After a brief discussion with Paul about the intro, George starts at All Things Must Pass. George stops this run-through. He's not happy with John and Paul's vocal harmonies, likening them to Sure to Fall, a Carl Perkins song that was in the Beatles' repertoire up to the early 60s. As they talk, you hear a hyped-up John panting into the mic, eager to carry on. Paul suggests starting the song with the hook. They try this. One of the Nagra machines goes offline to change batteries at this point. George procrastinates again. Thinking aloud, he preferred to do the song on acoustic. He wasted a lot of time previously changing guitars when they last rehearsed this song. At this point, Paul again suggests that he do the song as a solo performance. George isn't thinking that though, he just wants the backing vocals to sound better. John also likes the solo performance idea, calling it an hors d'oeuvre for the main live show. George offers another backing vocal idea, one they've tried before, holding on to the word pass as an elongated note. He works on this with Paul. John, who hasn't participated, then asks what they want him to sing. They run through the song again, trying this harmony. Ringo doesn't take part. At this point, George asks John if he'd like to play piano instead. John moves over to the other keyboard. They then spend some time discussing chord voicings to make the piano parts sound better. John comments to George about taking a pep pill, his code for speed. George is cagey in his response, but it may explain John's more energetic presence today. Another run through, this time rejecting Paul's idea of starting with the hook of the song. But the tape cuts and we miss this performance. Paul discusses the phrasing of the All Things Must Pass hook line. He's having trouble staying in sync with George. John suggests the backing vocals just sing ah for this section. This solves the issue with this part. John asks again what his vocal part will be and they practice this. John then breaks into a performance of Mean Mr Mustard then tries the middle section of Don't Let Me Down on piano. Paul returns, having been away for this section, and rallies everyone. Come on Harrison, says John, sensing the momentum is being lost. Lift us out of this mire. They play through All Things Must Pass once more, producing the definitive Beatles performance of this tune. It's far from perfect, but from this distance it's easy to see that they were close to getting a great arrangement. As the song ends, John breaks into two Jerry Lee Lewis covers, Balls Like Me and You Win Again. Glyn is now ready to record, but George wants to move on and suggests Bathroom Window. Paul asks John if he wants to stay on piano for this song, which is where he'll stay for all future performances. He takes John through the chords as ever, quickly and efficiently. They play through the song, George thinks it should be faster. They try again at a faster tempo, but not fast enough. Paul calls for a third run-through, faster still and then seems satisfied. Three quick rehearsals and the song is ready, a stark contrast to George's less assertive approach. It's lunchtime. As they wander off to the canteen, John gives Michael a rough rendition of Johnny Symbol's Mr. Bassman. And now we can rejoin them as they return to the soundstage. Roll 84B, 
The Beatles return from lunch. Slate 148 continues. Camera A, wild sound. John on guitar, George tuning his yet again. The drums are erratic in timing and loose enough in style to suggest that Paul has got behind the kit. Gradually, a jam emerges from the tuning. Paul is back on bass, Ringo back on drums. Underneath all the noodling on the guitar and bass, you can hear George playing a brief extract of I'm in mine. George asks Kevin for the Fender 6 bass. Paul has now switched to piano. Mm -hmm. 
John plays a tiny snippet of what will become Sun King. The next thing we hear, the Beatles are rehearsing Maxwell's Silverhammer. George is now playing the Fender bass. We heard the anvil before lunch, but it's absent here. Mal must be otherwise engaged. This is roll 76A camera, slate 147 continued. John on backing vocals making up his own words. Paul still doesn't have lyrics for the final verse. Ringo fills in for Mal's anvil on the outro of the song. George now fiddling with the bass tuning. She tells Max to take away the George thinks the last run through was too slow. Paul counts off a faster version. Okay, one, two, one, two, three, four. Ringo forgets to change drumming for the pickup. Slate one four nine, camera A, end slate. Everyone forgets the whistling solo. George. Testing his mic confuses Paul, who thinks he wants to stop. Hello. 
keep going. Just testing, you see. It didn't sound smooth on. No, hello? Hi. This PA doesn't sort of, you can't sort of hear it coming from any, you can't really hear yourself too. Back in class again, Maxwell is an ass again, teacher gets annoyed. I don't know really, it's, uh, if we had the speakers nearer to us, like, uh, you should be able to hear if it was coming out yes, Hello? 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 Complaining they can't hear themselves, George points out that one of the PA speakers doesn't appear to be working. And I think it's Glyn that you can hear saying, Oh, no bloody wonder then. There is actually very little info online about the PA system the Beatles are using to amplify their voices. The model is the Fender PA4100, an all-transistor public address system with, as the name suggests, 4 channels and 100 watts RMS of output at 4 ohms, which basically means you need to plug in both of the Fender column speakers, each with 4 times 10 inch speaker cones inside, to get the full volume. As we can often hear on the Nagra tapes, the PA system is plenty loud enough for rehearsals. But it's hard to imagine this setup being powerful enough for their live show, Torchlit, with 2000 Arabs. The limitations of only four channels would also have presented a problem since the Beatles are using three of the channels for vocal mics, and the fourth is currently in use amplifying the piano. If George wanted to play acoustic guitar on All Things Must Pass alongside John on piano, then the Fender PA is already inadequate for their needs. As a contrast, contemporaries The Who, one of the loudest groups of the era, initially used the WEM, that stands for Watkins Electric Music, Audio Master 5-channel mixer sending a signal to numerous separate 100-watt transistor amplifiers chained together. This setup was also adopted by Pink Floyd, Cream, The Move, etc. By 1967, they'd upgraded to a Marshall Model 1966 major PA system using 200 watt power amps into several 4 times 12 inch speaker columns, later upgraded to 8 times 10 inch cabinets. Further investment was made in 1968 when they purchased a Swedish AccuSet mixing board, which uniquely featured both volume faders and echo on each channel. Such was the state of the art for touring rock bands in the UK. In the US, bands like the Grateful Dead, as we've discussed, had dedicated sound guys designing custom equipment. For this project, the Beatles haven't really considered their live sound seriously enough. John has talked about some of the technical advances that bands can call on on stage, and later Paul will complain that they haven't got a proper PA. They are, of course, both right. There seems to be an assumption that Glyn would handle the live sound, but on the first day of the project, Glyn claimed no knowledge of how to set up a PA. So, who else could be in charge of their live sound? Not George Martin, nor Peter Sutton, who does seem to have assumed the role, and certainly not Magic Alexis Mardis. 
This is a fundamental component of staging a live performance and it seems to have been completely overlooked. Happiness. A momentary reference to Happiness is a Warm Gum from Paul. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Paul counts off another, not quite so fast this time. George and John forget the solo again. When they do remember, they whistle the verse tune and not the chorus. Practicing the ending repeatedly tests John's patience. He makes reference to Paul's earlier comments to George and suggests this song might be better for Paul to play on his own. John makes an odd reference here with Malcolm Muggeridge and Tessie O'Shea watching it. It's John's idea of a sardonic put-down inferring that these two figures should constitute Paul's audience for Maxwell. All credit to Obadiah Jones for this next bit. On the 1st of July 1969, while holidaying in the Scottish Highlands with wife Yoko, her daughter Kyoko and his son Julian, John Lennon, already a notoriously bad driver, was startled by the sight of an oncoming car on the narrow road. 
he lost control and crashed into a roadside ditch. Seatbelts in cars not yet being compulsory and not even fitted to rear seats, three of the occupants were quite badly injured. The area being remote, it took an ambulance over an hour to reach them. John needed 17 stitches to his chin, Yoko 14 stitches to her forehead, and Kyoko 4 stitches to her lip. Julian had escaped injury, but was in shock. The same day as John's accident, the remaining three Beatles reconvened at EMI to work on what they had now decided would be a separate project from Get Back. They returned to the studio on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th, but John was still in hospital, so could not attend. Therefore, John could not be heard on Paul's Her Majesty, obviously, but also Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight. Returning to Weybridge via two helicopters and a private jet, John still did not make himself available for sessions on the 7th and 8th of July, when the other three Beatles tracked Here Comes the Sun. On the 9th of July, George, Paul and Ringo commenced work on Maxwell's Silver Hammer. John was always keen to point out that he had not participated in the recording. Speaking later in 1969, he stated, I was ill after the accident when they did most of that track. It was widely believed for many years that John did return to the studio on the 9th of July, but did not participate in the recording of Maxwell. This from showbizcheatsheet.com is typical. On his second day back, John was sitting in the studio as Paul, George and Ringo worked on the backing vocals for Maxwell's Silver Hammer. As a bit of a welcome back gesture, Paul asked John to join in and sing with them as he had in the past. John declined. According to Jeff Emmerich in Here, There and Everywhere, John and Yoko left the studio for the day shortly thereafter. However, in Mark Lewison's Hornsey Road touring show, he puts the date of John's return at the much later 21st of July. This is backed up by Obadiah Jones's Gimme Some Truth podcast, which cites two contemporary articles, both from the 19th of July, stating that John Lennon was now fit to return to recording with the Beatles. So despite his much-quoted disdain for the song Maxwell Silverhammer in interviews after the Beatles' breakup, Often echoed by George and Ringo, John's absence from this recording shouldn't be taken as a sign that he was refusing to take part. 17 stitches in the chin and the resultant swelling would have made singing a little uncomfortable. If he had been well enough, it's likely John would have taken part in the recording. It seems that the finished version of the song, as released on Abbey Road, was what caused John's negative reaction to it the most. During the sessions today, we get only the slightest glimpse of his lack of patience with the song. The Beatles' connection to Muggeridge is an interesting one. At one time, a household name, Malcolm Muggeridge, led a colourful life. But he's probably best known to my generation as one of the two pundits, alongside Mervyn Stockwood, the Bishop of Southwark, who got into a heated debate with John Cleese and Michael Palin on a live chat show in 1979 over their film, Life of Brian. Muggeridge was a veteran journalist and satirist, 65 at the time of these sessions. He'd been a communist in his 20s and moved to Russia, then a fervent anti-communist. He served in the Second World War as a soldier and a spy in Africa. He was a journalist reporting on the famine in Ukraine and a novelist. He worked in Calcutta, India for the newspaper The Statesman. Post-war, he 
He wrote for the Evening Standard and the Daily Telegraph, later becoming deputy editor. He edited Punch magazine from 1953 to 1957 and caused outrage for an article in the Saturday Evening Post criticising the royal family, which in the 1950s was virtually treasonous. His journalistic contract cancelled, but his notoriety enhanced. Muggeridge soon found work as a broadcaster. His regular appearances on the BBC's Panorama showed him to be a tough interviewer. By the 1960s, Muggeridge found himself at odds with the changing world. Denouncing the new sexual laxity of the swinging 60s, he took a moral stand against pills and pot, i.e. contraceptives and cannabis. This despite his own well-known lack of morality in his attitude to women. As a public figure, he was well-known to the Beatles, but that's not why we're discussing him here. Extraordinarily, the Beatles and Muggridge had crossed paths before they were famous. In his diary entry for the 7th of June 1961, Muggridge made a note of their meeting. He had travelled to Hamburg for an interview with Stern magazine. Having free time afterwards, he went out on the town and ended up at the Top Ten Club on the Reaper Barn. He wrote, Germans with stony faces wandering up and down, uniform touts offering total nakedness, three negresses and other attractions, including female wrestlers. Not many takers, it seemed, on a warm Tuesday evening. Had the feeling that all this had been set up in place of the rubble, out of habit. It was there before, so put it back. Dropped into a teenage rock and roll joint. Ageless children, sexes indistinguishable, tight trousers stamping about, only the smell of sweat intimating animality. The band were English, from Liverpool, and recognised me. Long-haired, weird, feminine faces bashing their instruments and emitting nerveless sounds into microphones. In conversation, rather touching in a way, their faces like carvings of saints or blessed virgins. One of them asked me, Is it true you're a communist? No, I said, just in opposition. He nodded understandingly, in opposition himself in a way. You make money out of it, he went on. I admitted that this was so. He too made money. He hoped to take £200 back to Liverpool. Muggeridge didn't name the Beatle, but it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to recognise the confrontational air as that of John Lennon. Muggeridge's chance meeting gives us a rare snapshot into a moment in time and a fair description of the Beatles' Hamburg shows. John Lennon and Muggeridge would cross paths again later in 1969, December 7th to be exact, where a debate on the BBC's religious programme, The Question Why, was chaired by Muggeridge and John and Yoko appeared among the guests. Paul counts off another run-through. John's guitar playing sounds a little half-hearted.
this breaks down after the chorus. Mal has returned to play Anvil, but can't find his hammer. Paul counts off another. The Anvil isn't mic'd, but it's just about there. Glyn is fiddling with the faders. We get too much bass and then some feedback. This sounds like the same performance. This is roll 77, slate 151. Mal can be heard now. It sounds like Mal has wrapped his hammer in silver foil for the sake of authenticity. Paul is impressed. George practicing the bass part. This breaks down. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, 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 hello. I think Paul couldn't hear his vocal. 
Glenn can be heard saying, do you want it louder? Which suggests he's controlling the volume on the PA. One, two, one, two, three, four. Georgie's Les Paul Lucy, which has been perched precariously on the drum riser, falls over, taking a tea tray with it. This can be seen in Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary, but the sound has clearly been enhanced by some Foley artists. You don't actually hear the guitar fall over on the Nagra tapes. Again, it's amazing that guitar stands weren't being used. Such things did exist in 1969. Can you do anything about what that, Lynn? Bang, bang, Maxwell, silver hammer. Johnny's querying his harmony part. Paul wants George to sing a different harmony part. George is discovering the bass player's nemesis, singing and playing at the same time. Okay. Are you doing a harmony to that, George? Hello. I'm trying to sing, I can sing bang, bang, Maxwell and. Clang, clang. John do it together then. One, two, three, four. Bang, bang, Maxwell, silver hammer came down upon his head. Okay. Bang, do you bang, do that? Hang on. You do that note. Bang, bang, bang Maxwell, silver hammer came down upon his head. Oh, it's too, uh, you know. I'll have to have something very simple, otherwise the bass just Okay, well you off. do you do Johnson bang bang, 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 bang. Silver the hammer came down upon his head. head. Bang, bang, Maxwell, silver hammer, made sure that she was dead. Bang, bang, Maxwell, silver hammer came down upon his head. Well, silver hammer edge of the Yeah, oh, for the other bits, you just stay on that. That she was dead. And then you do bang, 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 so silver hammer it down upon his head. Bang, 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 silver hammer it down upon his head. Bang, bang, Maxwell, silver hammer went down upon his head. Down upon his head Clang, clang, 
The proposed harmony clashes badly with the lead vocal line. Counts off another run through, the third one since saying one more. One, two, three, four. She was dead. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silver Hammer came down upon his head. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silver Hammer made sure that she was dead. John runs through his harmony on his own, George plays walking bass line, and Ringo some jazzy drums. Rhythm and Blues, shouts George, the exact same ending he'll give to For You Blue. At the end of the Beatles' upbeat rendition of Red Sails in the Sunset, captured live at the Star Club in Hamburg in 1962, Paul is heard to utter this phrase at the climax of the song. Rhythm and blues. This is the same phrase George is using now and will reuse again on his overdub vocal for For You Blue later in 1970. After a lot of searching, I've managed to locate the recording of Red Sails that the Beatles are most likely covering. Versions of Red Sails in the Sunset were most often performed as a melancholy ballad with an orchestrated backing. But a few up-tempo versions have been attempted in the rock and roll era, notably by Big Joe Turner, Johnny Burnett and Paul Anker. However, the Beatles version bears the closest resemblance to the double-time style of Emil Ford's cover, backed by the Checkmates in 1960. What that version is lacking, however, is Paul's rhythm and blues coda. In fact, I can't find a version of the song, at least not pre-1962, that ends this way. Now, it could be simply how Paul liked to vocalise the corny big band style ending to the song, and as such George was paying homage to it. Or both George and Paul had picked the phrase up from another performer, perhaps 
Jean Vincent or Little Richard, with whom they shared the Reaper Barn stints. The term rhythm and blues had been used to describe a genre of music since the 1940s, and the Beatles were familiar with the term. They do, after all, sing it in the song Roll Over Beethoven during the same residency. It's an interesting little vocal reference, which I may never get to the bottom of, sadly. Unless any of the Wad fans out there can find me the source. Paul asks, have you got the paper, meaning the list of songs to rehearse? You can hear some rustling as someone, probably George, flicks through the notes. George then suggests, would you like to learn a new one? Oh yes, says John, probably only too pleased to move on from Maxwell's Silver Hammer. That's pure speculation, but John did become irritated with Paul earlier. Oddly, George is suggesting they use an acoustic bass, not a double bass or contrabass as it's known, but the kind used in mariachi bands. The instrument is actually called a guitar-on. It's tuned A, D, G, C and A. It would take some time for one of the Beatles to learn to play it. Glidden chips in, thinking Ivor Morant's shop had one of those. Most of the conversation is drowned out by John's tapping on his fretboard, rather tunelessly. reference to T-Bone Walker could imply that John is holding his guitar the same way as the blues man, i.e. virtually lying flat in front of him. Glynn is now asking John to move position to improve sound through the PA. He doesn't want the microphones facing the speakers. One does wonder why he doesn't move the speakers rather than the performers. But what do I know? Thank you. 
tape cuts and that's it if you want to support the show you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod that's w-o-d-p-o-d you can also interact with me on the socials facebook and instagram and twitter plus my gmail all titled winter of discontent pod please like and subscribe and leave a review it really helps other people find us thanks for listening and bye for now